This is the Brew World Order Podcast. Welcome to the Brew World Order Podcast. My name is Mike Curtin. If you haven't subscribed yet, well, dip dos nidolot dibliojo dibu. If you understood what I just said, I'm having a seizure and please call a doctor. This is episode number 62, and in this episode, I sit down with Brian Thiel, co-owner of Ghostfish Brewing Company in Seattle, Washington. Brian tells me how a beer showing up at a wedding in Utah equates to success for him, how his four core values always seem to get him through any situation, and how he never wants to think of himself as the smartest man in the room, because when you do that, you can miss out on some really great ideas. I actually pretend to be the dumbest guy in the room. Not because I think I'm dumb, but when you act as such, you get to see real people's character. Come to think of it, I always pretend to be the dumbest right after a six pack of beer. No, I think I'm just really drunk. (laughs) Well, (laughs) life lessons learned. And now it's time for you to learn a thing or two in this episode from Brian Thiel. I know I did. So sit back, crack open a beer, Enjoy the episode. Hey guys, I'm Mike Curtin. This is the Brew World Order Podcast, and today I'm with Brian Teal, co-owner of Ghostfish Brewing Company in Seattle, Washington. Brian Teal grew up in Northwest Ohio. His grandmother helped to raise him and his brother during the summers while his parents both worked hard. His grandmother loved her beer. She didn't have a favorite. Usually it was whatever was on sale. She convinced Brian at a young age to start collecting beer cans. He loved going to garage sales and scouring the neighborhood searching for cans almost like a scavenger hunt. He still has a bunch of those cans to this day. After high school, he attended Bowling Green University and graduated with a bachelor's in international studies and a minor in economics. After college, he really didn't know what he wanted to do. Coincidentally, Brian couldn't seem to get away from cans. He would go on to work for the Ball Corporation, which is one of the largest can production companies in the world. Promotion after promotion, Brian moved up in the company and stayed there for 21 years. He would leave after that to help his wife at the time start up a company. Soon thereafter, he went on to work for Crown Packaging, Bull Corporation's competitor. At Crown, he saw the potential of pushing craft beer companies to put more of their products into cans. He convinced his manager to create a new position where he did just that. As he worked closely with brewery owners, he started to notice certain things. One of those things was the camaraderie between the breweries. It absolutely intrigued him. While he was working at Crown, a friend of Brian's received a homebrewing kit as a gift. They started to brew together, and soon it became more than a hobby when the words, We should start a brewery, came about. Brian and his partners got to work to make things happen, and in August of 2014, they opened their doors to the public as Ghostfish Brewing Company. And Brian is here with me today. Brian, how's it going, man? It's going great, Mike. Good to be here with you. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you for uh, being on. So... During that process of opening your brewery from the start when you first decided that, yeah, we're going to open, we're going to open a brewery to the moment you opened your doors, what would you say was the most challenging part for you? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a big question. Right. (laughs) There's a lot of ways to probably answer that. Uh, I'm sure. You know, I would, I would say that really the pressure that we put on ourselves, you know, like uh, when you're starting in the startup phase. And now looking back on it, you know, it's obviously with a lot more clarity than I had at the time. I mean, first of all, there was a tremendous amount of trepidation as far as what we what we were doing. I mean, just I think starting anything, is this going to work? 
there was fear about not wanting to be the laughing stock in uh, a city that was full of like really highly reputable breweries. Right. There was fear of nobody <laughs> liking our product, all those things. So that was difficult, but I think it was really the pressure that we put on ourselves to open because, you know, any startup project that is highly capital intensive, like opening of a brewery is when uh, I remember this, just this continual like writing of checks and everything was going out but there was nothing coming in right <laughs> and we were off uh, our own plan as far as opening uh, we, we had our, our our government license the ttb license we had our state state of washington brewery license all in place and then it was like small little mishaps or hiccups and things like that and a lot of us that were involved in the original project also are uh, some, some anal tendencies meaning that you know like we want things to look a certain way and I, I think it was the pressure to answer your question it literally was the pressure that we put on ourselves to open and then feeling like oh we're not going to meet that and what's you know what does that mean because we have no money coming in and i remember another brewery owner that became friends with when i was selling printed aluminum cans to his company came down to visit us and we were going through this litany of lists in our minds of things that we needed to finish before opening and he laughed and he said listen there's always going to be things to do but just open the doors because right. if you've got beer that's all people care about like right. people like coming in and seeing changes <clears throat> in your tap room so don't worry about the things nobody's going to know that that wall needs painted blue and it's green you know or whatever and stuff so I'd say it was really just figuring that out that, uh, you know, we put a lot of undue stress and pressure on ourselves trying to get open and trying for it to look a certain way when it didn't necessarily need to. Right. So I know you were, you were homebrewing for a while and you had said that you wanted to open a brewery. You kind of mentioned it to each other and like kind of told people about it. But what was the exact moment, that aha moment that got the ball rolling? I do actually kind of remember that. I don't know. I don't. I can't remember where I was, but I remember sort of the, the headspace that I was in. Like it was this sort of aha moment that, that I had, you know, internally. That I had a few conversations with some. Again, you know, uh, I, I was in the industry selling to and, and having personal relationships with owners, you know, individuals that have gone through this. I started asking them, similar to what you've been asking me, you know, what was it like, you know, when you opened this. And what I kind of discovered after talking to about, I don't know, 10 to 15 brewery owners, different parts of the country that didn't know anything what I was looking to do. I was just sort of, you know, metering these questions into our normal conversations. Right. What I what I realized is that there were a lot of them. I know there were some that, you know, that went to school and this was this is what they wanted to do. And they were accomplished homebrewers. There were others that were similar to me that, you know, were doing other things in their life. And uh, they had a passion for, for craft beer one way or the other. And um, those discussions gave me a lot of confidence that I didn't need to possess anything other than what I already had. The experience that I had was just enough, was just fine for what, what we needed to do. And right. so I think that was the, sort of the that aha moment for me, you know, over the course of conversations with other brewery owners, discovering that, you know, hey, if they can do it, I can do it. Right. And how did you go about finding the capital to fund your business? Well, uh, there were three uh, three individuals that, uh, that helped to start uh, this company uh, initially, and each one of us uh, contributed uh, an equal amount. And the fourth individual came with a larger bag of money, if you will, 
Um, and this was somebody that I had a working relationship with and also a friendship with, you know, that connection and his trust uh, and belief in me that uh, brought him into this combined with what we already had was, uh, you know, the startup money that we needed to get off the ground. Gotcha. Pandemic aside, what was something you never thought you were going to have to deal with when opening a brewery? <laughs> wow. How long do we have, Mike? Yeah, right. Uh, you know, oh. I think it's anything, anytime that you're in a business that's, that has a specific purpose, and particularly in manufacturing, you know, you might start off thinking, hey, you know, we brew beer, right? right. Okay, that's, that, that's all we're going to do. Quickly realize that you also are, you know, you need to put on your IT hat because you need to be able to process data. <laughs> you need to know your way around, basically, uh, financial mm-hmm. documents. And so uh, then you also need to understand logistics, uh, freight, warehousing, and uh, a whole slew of other things that come along with that. So I don't know if it was necessarily one thing. Uh, there was a lot of things that, you know, just sort of cropped up. It's like, oh, yeah, there's, you know, I, I've worked 25 years of my professional working career, you know, for Fortune 300 companies. If there was a problem with my laptop, I would literally call our IT department. And I remember the day that my personal laptop stopped working and I literally thought, oh, I'm going to call. And I had a name in my head from, from my past. And I'm like, oh, that's, that person doesn't work for me. That person is from my old company. Like, okay. I don't have an IT department. <laughs> so I had to, you know, you have to kind of figure out alternative ways to get things done. But now sitting here, you know, like 10 years, you know, removed, you know, from the beginning of talking about owning a brewery and even, you know, seven years removed from the actual opening of this. I mean, I've certainly learned a lot. And, you know, for that, I'm very fortunate. There hasn't been too many you know, major blunders, you know, that you could learn from. But uh, hopefully I've answered, I've given you enough to answer your question there. Yeah. I mean, you, you're talking about learning a lot. What would you say was one of the biggest lessons that you think you've learned so far since becoming an owner of a brewery? Well, without a doubt, uh, it is, you know, going into business with, with other people. And I would say one of the things that we, the three initial active owners, did not that we failed to do was that we failed to actually really plan what our roles in this company would look like beyond the first six months of the business. It was just sort of decided that the one individual that knew how to brew with these non-traditional grains and create the recipes, that suddenly that person became the production manager. It didn't matter whether that person had any experience within manufacturing or production, that role just sort of was handed to that individual. And another individual who helped to build out the physical space suddenly was the operations manager with zero experience in this industry doing that. While I came in with sales experience, I also have a lot of other experience as well too, but that was the thing that I was doing prior to starting this, just just sort of like pigeonholed into, okay, well, Brian's going to handle the sales. And I would say this is advice for anybody that is starting a brewery, I think, and particularly going into business with another person or persons, and that is defining the roles, not just for startup, but the first year, the first probably three years of what that looks like, because what you start with in your business doesn't necessarily have to determine that that's what you do for the for remainder of the time of business. Right. I think if we would have known this and we would have spent more time 
we could have avoided a lot of issues that that I think that uh, you know were detrimental to us in the first probably four years of our business. You know, that's that's how hindsight works. You know. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. And uh, what are, what are some qualities that you possess that make you a good business owner? Well, I'd like to I'd like to think that I'm a good listener. I do tend to talk a lot, right. <laughs> but I think that before you can really talk about anything, you you also need to listen. So one thing that I've learned, not only in this business, but just, you know, throughout my business career is that to listen first and, you know, sort of the, the old, what, uh, measure twice, you know, cut once, right. you know, sort of, you know, like. <laughs> Actually, listen twice, you know, probably is not a bad thing, too. You know, it's not just so much to listen once, but maybe to think about, you know, how you could hear things in a different perspective as well, too. And if I try to put myself into the shoes of people within my operation to say, you know, where does this, where's this question or concern coming from? Why would they ask me this? You know, like what's prompting that? Things like that. Right. I do possess a lot of empathy. So I think that's a business owner needs to have that. But I'm also, some of my team have told me, you know, I'm, that I'm a dreamer. <laughs> and I don't know That's if not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Not, I, I think that uh, I do dream big. Dream big. Um, there's not a minute that probably goes by that I don't think about this company. What if we What if we did this differently? What if we tried this? We've got these ideas for new beers, new new beer, you know, branding, all kinds of stuff. And so it's it's. I think that that combined with the spirits that I just never give up. I mean, I'm. I'm a kind of go down with the ship type of a guy. So that combined, you know, it's, it's sort of blind faith, you know, sometimes, you know, is what uh, I think uh, is needed sometimes in business because there's going to be rough rough patches. And that's when I really try to listen the most. And to be honest with you, Mike, we have four values in this company. And if I could just take just a minute or two to say, like, a lot of companies Absolutely. have core, core values. Right. Myself and the other two individuals, which, by the way, are no longer with this company, so I'm I'm the only remaining owner from the from the original three. Okay, but so you're you're the you're the sole owner, right? uh, No, uh, there there are now um, I believe a total of thirteen ghost fish owners, uh, of which I believe there are seven of us that are uh, full have full ownership. Wow. Uh, but I'm, I'm the only active um, owner, meaning that I'm a managing member active in the business. Okay. Very cool. Uh, just quickly on this, on the core values that uh, a lot of companies have them spend the time, you know, in the beginning, which we did. And I was pleased with, you know, we spent a lot of time developing them only to like a lot of companies do, like we just sort of shelved them. You know, they ended up going into a drawer somewhere never to be looked at again. In 2019, when I stepped into the managing member position of the company, uh, I pulled them out, dusted them off. There hasn't been a time or an event or anything put me in a stuck position, if you will. Like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Right. I haven't been able to to refer to those four simple core values that we have to figure out the answer. Like, the answer is always there for me and stuff. So I think understanding and believing in those values has really been a, a guiding light for me, you know, as far as a leader of this company. Gotcha. Speaking of your, you know, your core values, is there a moment that sticks out for you that was a defining moment of like kind of success that you kind of like had to stand back and be like, wow, like we're, 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 we're doing it. We're really making it. Well, I think success is relative. Right. <laughs> 
we've been blessed with a lot of successes in our seven years of being in business. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I, I credit the talented people that have been that are part of this organization, you know, for any successes that we have. That being said, you know, I'm still having those those moments where, you know, I, I, I sort of step back and reflect upon where we started from, you know, where, where we are now. I think today the biggest thing is that we're distributing in just shy of 20 U.S. states and we're in two Canadian provinces and soon to be more states, soon to be more provinces. It's great. We're actually, we've been sending beer now for the last year to the UK. And so wow. when I hear stories, and I'll just, there's a lot, so I'll just boil it down to one just happened recently. A person that comes in here uh, that actually works down the street from us here uh, for an engineering firm, I, I don't know this person. I just met them several weeks ago. They were in here before the holidays. And they shared with me that their small team loves coming here. They're not, none of them are gluten-free, which is typical for our customer base. You know, right. again, we cater to people who just like good food and like good beer. But central to this story, this individual said, you know, I got to share this, this funny story with you. I just came back from a wedding in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the lady who kind of organized, who was part of the family that had a person that got married, is a huge ghost fish fan. And so all the beer there was basically all ghost fish beer. Like there's these tubs of all your beer there. And he's like, wow. how did you guys get ghost fish beer? Now, we do distribute to Utah. Um, so right. that's not necessarily, you know, that's surprising. This particular individual who helped to kind of pull everything together was not from Utah. They were from Vermont. Now, we also distribute to Vermont, but who knows how this person got the beer there? Like, right. the person said, yeah, I had this beer flown in. Did she have it flown in from Washington? Did she have it flown in from Vermont? I don't know. But here's a situation where, you know, I'm standing there listening to this guy telling me that he's been bringing his team here, that he just comes back to Salt Lake City. He's at a random wedding somewhere in, in Utah, and the whole wedding was serving gluten-free beer and our beer. And she's like, oh, yeah, this is hands down the best gluten-free beer, you know, in the world. That's and it's awesome. Just like those stories still just like touch me right to the core. Give you the chills, uh, right? <laughs> and yeah, it does. And to to your question, I guess to put it in that context, it's like I don't know. You know, is that a success? I'd say yeah, because you know, like if we weren't there, what would they have done? You know, and if they if they really wanted a good gluten free beer and Ghost Fish wasn't there, you know, so I. I do take a lot of pride in knowing that, you know, that hey, we were able to pull that off. But it's still pretty cool, you know, knowing that people that aren't necessarily here in our local, you know, area in Seattle and stuff that are enjoying our beer and having a good experience. That uh, feels like a win for me. Right. No, absolutely. Completely agree. I mean, like you had stated before, you've been in business for seven years now. So I'm sure you've built your team up enough to be able to take a break from everything and, and know that everything's going to be a-okay, especially if you're distributing in that many states and, and different countries and whatnot. How important would you say is a mental break for you? Well, <laughs> that's a, that's a real uh, interesting question. Uh, um, my team knows that I preach workplace balance. Um, I'm a big believer in that. I may not be the best at following my own advice, right? but I will tell you that I do see the value in it even for myself because it's easy to get too wrapped up into anything, you know, particularly something that you're passionate with. And 
I think you can overdo it. You see it in sports, right, where uh, a star who is very capable might try to just take things on too much on themselves and forget about their team. Right. Sometimes it works, but often it doesn't quite go the way right. planned. And I've, I've seen that where I've tried to do too much, maybe too soon or too much in a too short of a time. And if I just would have, like, stepped back, taken some time, perhaps I would have, you know, come at it a different way. And so uh, I do see the value of clearing your mind, of giving yourself a mental break coming back at it, you know, with clean, you know, mind, looking at things, you know, from a different way. Right. Uh, I'm still working on that for myself. Uh, I think probably a lot of entrepreneurs do share the same sort of disease, and that is uh, like FOMO, fear of missing out. Right, yeah. It's, it is a legitimate thing that uh, I have to be conscientious about for sure. Yeah. No, I love that. And I love the uh, bring up the point of being a, a star in a team and then, you know, not remembering that you have a team around you to help you and not taking it all on yourself. That's uh, I like that analogy a lot. One quick you know, follow up to that. And that is something that I have worked hard, particularly over the last two years, two and a half years of building the team. Because I have never, at any time of my, my life and my, in my career, have ever thought of myself as the smartest person in the room. In fact, I know that I'm never, I usually never, never are. I mean, I just kind of go into it that way. And I'm okay with that. Right. I've, I've been able to be effective in my work life based on building relationships, uh, big on relationships, knowing who the right people are. And so when you, I think, kind of figure that out, take the pressure off of the fact that you have to have all the answers. And so, and I don't, and I, I do lean on my team and I talk the team, they get tired of hearing me say this, but I talk about getting in the barrel. And by that, I mean, it's like a lot of decisions get made by having a few people together, bouncing ideas off, you know, each other and getting feedback and getting, you know, different perspectives. And I call that kind of getting in the barrel right. together. Yeah. Um, that's, I'm really excited about the position that we're in because it hasn't always been that way in this company. And I've worked hard to create a good, solid foundation where we've got competent, people that I trust who are also experts in what they're doing, um, have a lot of confidence in what they're doing. And I think when you're in that place and you believe in your team, there's really nothing you can't do. Right. Yeah. You only know what you know. <laughs> That's true. That's uh, so true. So like I said, you've been in this industry for a while now. What do you think has been the biggest change for you uh, in the industry in the last five years? Well, there's certainly been, you know, a huge influx of, of, of breweries, you know, like, Pandemic aside, you know, which obviously put put some rakes on the growth, but you had this tremendous growth of people, and everybody's got a story. And I never take away anybody's reasons for getting in this, right. but I have seen from the perspective of being in a position of selling packaging materials to breweries and getting to know owners, you know, uh, from that side of it, and then now being on the same side of it, running this business. I think that. There were a lot of people getting into this, specifically the brewing industry, that perhaps were great home brewers. Probably, you know, got a lot of, you know, high fives and slaps on the back and accreditation, you know, from right. local audience, you know, that, uh, that their beer was really good. And the next logical step is to open up a brewery. And probably for some of the same reasons I said to you earlier, it's like you start talking to enough people and it's like, well, geez, they don't really possess much more experience than what I do. And so I think I can do this. And without necessarily regard for the business side of it. And that's something that 
I would stress and underline for anybody, you know, and I try to anybody that will listen to me that wants advice as far as starting a brewery is just to really to make sure they understand the significance of treating the business as a business. Again, not to take away the fact that they may make great beer, but uh, I think great beer can only take you so far at the end of the day got to focus on how to to be sustainably profitable uh to survive and it doesn't matter which scale you're on it doesn't matter whether you're a packaging brewery and you want to be in 20 u.s states or you want to just sell to the local to keep the lights on you got to figure out how to basically to be profitable that i i would say the last five years i've seen a lot of people getting into this that i question you know like their ability to you know their sort of business acumen and their ability to stay stay open but i mean i'm not necessarily the person to judge that and some of them have worked out and others have you know not worked out right from what i hear it's uh you know start small don't try and go at the distribution route right away and uh kind of build up locally before trying to expand out little by little so i think people try to take on too much too soon sometimes and it kind of bites them in the ass and I agree with you on that, Mike. The other thing that, you know, what I've seen in the last five years is that there are a lot of supporting services and companies making products that support brewers and breweries, right. and the brewing industry, particularly the craft brewing industry that didn't exist five to 10 years ago that now exist and are actually affordable for a craft brewery you know, more of an entry level than having to be, you know, a large scale brewery. And, you know, they're the only ones that could afford, you know, certain pieces of equipment and things like that. So right. there's been a tremendous amount of, of uh, growth in that segment of this industry of what I'd say supporting companies, you know, whether it's making products or equipment or just services that are designed to make a, a uh, small breweries life easier and, and that's huge because there's just so much information coming at brewery owners particularly a small brewery owner you know you're, you're you have to wear lots of different hats as i talked before right yeah. and uh when you've got some of these you know ways you can outsource some of these stuffs without going broke that's a game changer yeah for sure this is uh my favorite question of all what was your gateway beer into the craft beer world asked this before and uh i would say new belgium fat tire probably was my beer. okay i was living in colorado i was traveling to colorado because uh ball corporation's headquarters had moved to broomfield colorado uh, i'm originally from as i said northwest ohio so i was traveling a lot there uh, that was probably the first non what i would call macro beer that i basically had right kind of made me go whoa what am I tasting here? Yeah, right. That's a good one. It's definitely a good one. I think it's the first time people have uh, had said that to me. It's the first one that was mentioned. Uh, that I haven't heard that before. But uh, yeah, that's. I mean, that was a very popular one, West Coast wise. So, what's next for your brewery? What does the future look like for Ghostfish? Well, you know, I feel like we're in a good position. You know, like we're the owners of our destiny here cool thing about this this segment you know the, the gluten-free segment is that uh there, there's more players and I'm, I'm happy to see that there's some really good stuff going in going on in gluten-free brewing not just here at ghost fish but you know and some of our friends in the industry uh so i think that's good for the segment i think more people looking at, at gluten-free beer 
through a lens of just good beer, you know, versus that it's something inferior or, or less than or not good right. is always a good thing. So, and we've had prior to Ghost Fish and a few others coming on the scene seven to, to 10 years ago, you know, you had a lot of what I'd just say just bad gluten free beer. That, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll agree. You know, <laughs> left a lot of, you know, I guess pun intended, left a bad taste in people's mouth. Right. Yeah. So, so we've been changing, you know, a lot of work to change that. But, you know, for us, my personal goals, big vision for this company is to be the preferred gluten-free beer of customers in North America, period. So for that, to that end, we're really focused on, you know, our quality and building the, the infrastructure and the foundation that we need to be able to, to continue to produce consistently high-quality beer. We are... In process, uh, while we haven't officially announced this, I think it's <laughs> there's been enough discussion out in the public that, uh, that I'm comfortable talking to you about the fact that we are in process as we speak with opening up a second production facility. Very cool. In Westfield, Westfield, New York. Um, Westfield. That outside of Buffalo, and that facility is going to eventually take over sales uh, for Ghost Fish uh, east of the Mississippi. Right now, about 40% of the beer that we make here in our Seattle brewery uh, is shipped east of Mississippi, and specifically about probably 30% of that 40% is going to the, the northeast. So it doesn't really make sense for us to continue, particularly in, a, in an age uh, where uh, fuel costs are, are, are very high right yeah. now. Oh, yeah. Uh, right. Transportation in general is, uh, is, is a tough tough business to be in and uh you know here we are shipping our product you know clear across the country doesn't really make sense for sustainability Um, no absolutely not east coast production facility is going to allow us to not only take some margin back but uh, also expand our distribution footprint throughout the east as well as uh bring some capacity back to seattle brewery that will allow us to go deeper the areas where we already distribute but also open up some other areas that we've been itching to be in as well too. So I think the foreseeable future is really, like I said, continue to focus on quality, continue to focus on getting our costs down and, and figuring out how we can optimize, uh, you know, just two manufacturing breweries, you know, like uh, uh, across the United States from each other. Right. Yeah. It sounds like a good idea. And especially because it's in New York and that's where I am. So I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> as do a lot of other people based on the initial feedback. Yeah, right. Well, best of luck. Um, Thank you. And uh, I know you had mentioned before if you were giving advice to somebody, but if somebody came to you and asked you for advice for opening their own brewery, what would you tell them? I would tell them to do their homework. The nice thing about wanting to open up a brewery and starting from a ground zero position is that there's a person who shouldn't have to go very far wherever they are. I mean, even in places outside of Seattle, there's still a lot of craft breweries. So people... As I said, it's a very inclusive industry. I think people are looking to share things just as people had shared stuff with me. I don't find a lot of people wanting to hold on to like some you know secret you know information that only only they hold. Uh, so like get out there, talk to those people, build your business plan. Like, I mean, I know that people hear this and they go like, do I really need a business plan? Yeah, you really do need a business plan. Yeah, absolutely. And you need to cross T's, dot I's. You need to like really vet that out. And as I said before, even if you're not going into business with somebody else, you know, it's really, you know, like don't focus on just getting open. Think about, and the first 
30, 60, 90 days, what is the first six months, the first year, the first three years really look like and really try to map that out the best it can. And the last piece of advice I would say is that whatever amount of money you think that you're going to need, add to that because you're absolutely (laughs) going to need more. I've heard that one many times, but yeah, definitely set small goals is, is, uh, seems like a very important thing, you know? Um, I'd say, you know, like the last thing I would add to that, Mike, is that, you know, if you're passionate, I wouldn't, and I also wouldn't let tell tell somebody to worry too much about. They say, "Don't sweat the small stuff." Sure, you know, like small little things to take you down. But if you have a true passion in something and you believe in yourself, I think that that's like the personal foundation that anybody needs to start any business. From there, there's a lot of resources, there's a lot of tools, there's a lot of things that anybody can do in any walk of life, even if it, whether it's brewing or not but like you have to believe in yourself and you have to believe in what you're doing absolutely and the thing that's guided me is that i've always believed in this product i've always believed in what we're doing and if i didn't have that i doubt i'd have this level of confidence even talking to you right absolutely not to say like uh, uh set your your goal small i mean like you know when you say like have a plan for three months six months a year like set those small goals not to like be like Oh, I need to reach the mountain right away. It's, you know, those small steps that get you where you need to go, you know? Absolutely. How do you eat an elephant? You know, one bite at a time. Right. And uh, did you happen to have a funny story for us? <laughs> wow. How do you choose? Yeah, you choose right. One? I'm sure. In seven years' time, I'm sure. Uh, I thought about this, and I'll share one. I, As I've shared with you previously, that admittedly, I'm not a good brewer. Uh, I am not the person that is brewing the beer at Ghost Fish. Uh, my claim to fame is that I like to tell people that I, I hire the people that brew the beer. So right. <laughs> that's as close to as I come. I mean, I understand how to brew beer and what, what it takes, but uh, you start talking like beer geek, technical, you know, brewing stuff and I'm, I'm out. But <laughs> in the beginning, myself and my, my business partner and the other founder of Ghost Fish, when we were home brewing, I, at that time, I was living in an old beach house that was built in the late 40s, and it was built on a bulkhead right on the Puget Sound and at the mouth of the port of Tacoma, which is a very active port uh, on the West Coast. So you have all these big cargo ships basically pass by. It's pretty majestic because you got the Olympic Mountains in the background, and you got this, like, huge body of water, huge ships coming in and out and stuff. So we did a lot of initial home brewing there at that place. And at one particular time, we didn't have the equipment. Here's the other thing too. Like, you know, like we, we didn't have the the fancy equipment, you know, we, we really were pretty uh, ignorant in a lot of things. And so instead of having a wart chiller, we had to conventionally figure out how to chill the wart down before we pitched the yeast. So we had the beer in a carboy, thought about, you know, obviously filling the tub with ice. We didn't have any ice. We didn't feel like going and getting ice and everything. So it's like we had a, we were in a very low tide. Uh, I remember saying, well, why don't we just take this carboy out and position it? The water was about knee deep. Let's just position this thing there in the cold water because the waters in the Puget Sound stay year round about 40 degrees. Right. So like, let's, let's just let the, you know, mother nature, let's let the water chill this thing down. And so we put it out there. Everything was fine. I don't know. We got doing something else. And, you know, probably more time went by than what we thought. And next thing we know, we're like, hey, should we go check on the, the carboy and, and, and see, you know, how it's going along? 
this thing floating out into the water, like <laughs> high tide had come up, came came in like it normally does, you know, right. twice a day, and literally just swept this keg right. out into the the water. And so now we're actually like swimming, trying to get this thing, oh like trying God. to save it <laughs> from being you know swept out to sea. Screaming out Wilson. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that that's the that's the visual, you know, stuff. This so. Uh, we had a good laugh, you know, I, I don't think I've told the story, you know, too many times, but, uh, cause it was kind of embarrassing to us at the time, but, uh, looking back on it, you know, it was, it was pretty, pretty funny, you know, that, that we even did that and, uh, and then forgot about it and then almost lost it and stuff. Right. But I can't even remember if the beer turned out any good. I would say that it probably didn't, but, uh, maybe it should have just like, should have just floated out to sea and be forgotten about. Yeah. Right. Is that, is that where you guys got your name from? That it was just like a... Well, yeah, not, the, not that experience, but it was, since you asked that question, it's the number one asked question, you know, where did the name Ghostfish come from? Right. Uh, I did have a friend who, ironically, is now uh, a Ghostfish owner that was visiting at the time, around that same time. Key to the story is that my business partner and co-founder and I, at the time, were in the headspace of trying to come up with names. So we had pages upon pages of, like, names for, for breweries, some that... You know, we thought were cool, some that were maybe a little cool, but some probably were really not cool. And nothing was just really getting us excited. And so fast forward, I had this friend visiting. We went out at dinner. I let people know we had like one pint, two pints maybe at the most. This was all pre-cannabis, you know. Like, okay. You know, all right. Cannabis is legal in the state of Washington. Fair enough. Pre-cannabis. So no funny business there. All right. And uh, he was standing out on the bulkhead, and he came inside. He looked disheveled, and I said, hey, what's up? And he's like, hey, I just saw this blowing fish in front of your house. And, I, of course, I called him crazy, went out and stood on the bulkhead for about 30 minutes. Didn't see uh, anything, was just really out there to humor him. And then right before I went in, this large blowing object swam, lighted really under the water past us. Hair on my arms is standing up. I look at him. He's already flipping me off because <laughs> so much grief. And he's like, I told you so. And so we did something that I would don't recommend really anybody to do is it, but it's probably the number one thing that we all do when we don't know something. We go and what? Google it or, you know, look it up on the internet. And so you're going to find a bunch of crazy stuff. We right. did. All this would have been cleared up had my wife at the time been home because she has a master's in biology. All right. What we didn't know at the time was what it was. But the next day, I called my business partner and told him the story and even prefaced it saying, listen, I already know you're going to give me a lot of you know what. Right. Uh, but I went ahead and told him anyways. And I, I must have mentioned at that time a glowing ghost fish. He had a good laugh, hung up the phone. About an hour later, the phone rang. I picked it up. He literally let the call off saying, Ghost Fish Brewing Company. And I said, I love it. I love it. And yeah. we, we, like, we created the logo. I mean, it's, it, it evolved, you know, from where it is to where it is today. But, you know, like we, we had a vision of what we thought it was. And uh, we sort of built, you know, the brand around that one story. You know, when I tell the story, you know, I, I tend to leave out the fact people are always like, well, what was it? Well, what was it? Like, I don't really know what it was. Right. <laughs> I know what I saw. But again, back to my wife being there probably would have like put some perspective to this. It probably was all the bioluminescence in the water. Possibly. Um, it yeah. like, likely was like a mud shark or maybe a, a harbor seal or something that had stirred up all these like dinoflagellates that, you know, exist in the water that right. emit light when they're uh, in danger. 
and uh, who knows, but our staff has a lot of fun kind of telling their own versions of that story today. Right. Uh, that's For your listeners, that is the original story of how we became Ghostfish Brewing Company. We'll just chalk it up to it was a ghost fish. <laughs> yeah, that's, I like to say that it does exist and it's out there swimming in a sea near you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I have a little segment called Quick Fire Five. Five quick questions, beer related. Ready? Let's do it. Somebody comes into your brewery, what's one of the beers you'd recommend they try? I would say that it would be a miss if they came in and didn't try our Watchstander Stout. All right. Beer that I'm proud to say is one, two, Great American Beer Festival gold medals. Very nice. Uh, over the span of uh, span of six years. And it's a style that you don't find many stouts in the gluten-free world and many good gluten-free stouts. Right. Uh, favorite brewery other than your own? Oh, you know, I dislike this question. You dislike I, it? I'm sorry. You, you want me to change it no, up? It, no, it's okay. <laughs> uh, because I have so many so many friends out there, and I, I, I don't want to you know, offend I, anybody. But, I know. But I know. <laughs> I've got a couple of them. I'm going to say, if it's okay, I'm going to... Sure. Gonna, in no particular order. So, uh, because I'm friends with uh, these folks, and I think they make great beer, and they've done really well for themselves, Upslope Brewing in Colorado. Okay. Um, and then locally here, uh, Fremont Brewing uh, as well. Good friends, make great beer, and done really well for themselves. So uh, both mentors and friends and just uh, enjoy their beer and environments that they've created. Very cool. Uh, favorite style of beer? Uh, Belgians. Belgians. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm one kind of a unicorn, you know, that I, I mean, I like all beer. Uh, I can drink anything. There's nothing that I don't particularly like. But I'd say that Belgian style, Belgian-influenced beers, uh, probably my favorite. Very cool. Barrel-aged, imperial, or both? <laughs> uh, both, if possible. But yes. I, I, it's hard to pass up a good barrel-aged beer. Right. Yeah. I, I, I always go. I always try to go with both. Uh, and you have one keg of beer to hold you over for a two-week quarantine. Which beer are you choosing? For me, I'm ch- I'm I'm gonna choose I'm gonna choose a pale ale. Pale ale? Any no? Any specific one in particular? Well, I mean, I like our Vanishing Point pale ale, but uh, right. I mean, there's there's others out in the market as well too. Uh, but I think you know, pales tend to, particularly today, you know, they're not hip, they're not cool, they're maybe some people might even say that they're a little boring and stuff. But I still think that they're the workhorse, right? And they give you the best of both worlds, you know. I mean, you get, you know, hop, hoppiness that an IPA is going to give you, but you still get that malt character as well, too. So, I mean, it's a little both, best of both worlds. Right, for sure. Well, Brian, that's all I have for you, Ben. Survived. It wasn't too, you, too you, tough. Like. You did it. I told you. I told you. It would, be, <laughs> it would be nice and easy. Smooth sailing. Well, it's been a pleasure pleasure speaking with you. I, I've enjoyed this. You've asked some really great questions. I think you're doing a really great thing with your podcast, and I'm uh, glad that you were able to make this work. I appreciate it. Thank you for giving me your time. I appreciate it so much. I'm Mike Curtin for the Brew World Order Podcast, here with Brian Teal, co-owner of Ghostfish Brewing Company in Seattle, Washington. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to my interview with Brian Thiel, co-owner of Ghostfish Brewing Company in Seattle, Washington. Whether you live in the area or passing through or just visiting a friend nearby, you should definitely check them out. Also, give them a follow on social media while you're at it because, hey, those guys want you to know about delicious gluten-free beer. Every other Sunday, I'll be releasing new episodes to subscribe and you'll never miss one. 
Also, give us a follow on social media. Otherwise, I'm coming to your house and yelling at you. Not because you're not following us on social media, just because I got issues. I'm Mike Curtin for the Brew World Order podcast. You stay safe out there.